uh, do take God's Word for granted because there are a lot of places where a Bible is almost impossible to obtain. I remember through the areas before my parents came there, uh, they had one Bible that they divided up amongst several hundred churches, and each one, whatever section they got, that's all they could preach on. And uh, boy, were they thrilled when the Bibles came in. But I want you to turn with me to Esther chapter 5. We're continuing on in this fabulous book on God's providence, as well as many other lessons that are here. Hear the Word of God. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther <coughs> answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. When Haman told them of his great riches, multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty feet high, excuse me, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. Amen. Father God, we come before your word thankful that you have given it as a light to lighten our path, as a challenge to our ways. And I pray that you would work in us uh, this word, that you would work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. Anoint me, enable me, Father, to faithfully preach your word and anoint us as hearers and doers of it and as worshipers of you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of my favorite movies when I was growing up, actually it was a series, was uh, Mission Impossible. And I think it uh, drew something heroic out of my young heart. And I must have a little kid in me because I still thoroughly enjoyed <laughs> the uh, two movies, Mission Impossible, that came out, uh, you know, in the last couple years. And I enjoyed it for the plot. I enjoyed it for the intrigue that was in it. But 
I think one of the things that make me enjoy movies like that is this desire to do more than just the what I'm able to do, going beyond myself. And the neat thing about Christianity is that each and every day, God asks you to do something impossible. When you think about it, your call to sanctification is impossible. Uh, and yet, I think there are people all throughout this congregation who are doing the impossible. In other words, what uh, no human apart from God, God's grace could do. Uh, when you think of things like um, God's call for us to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, you know, the human heart just revolts against things like that. When you realize God's call for us to not be bitter, but instead to rejoice, even in the midst of persecution, we might say, that's impossible. Uh, when you, you see God's call to... Uh, have a pure mind or to be content in whatever circumstances that we may find ourselves in, we might think that that is impossible and yet there are Christians who do this all the time by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to be thinking about this morning is the impossibilities that God is calling you to. Uh, I think we ought to look with admiration at one another when we see people growing in holiness in areas that only God's grace again could accomplish because it's God's grace. We see your good works and they glorify your Father in heaven. If it's things that any unbeliever could do, then your good works really don't glorify anybody but yourself, right? And one of the things I think that makes me weep when I read missionary biographies like Peace Child is that I want my life to count for eternity, I don't want it to be just something that uh, goes with the flow right now. Take, for example, our church's burden to bring reformation to the churches of Omaha uh, or the burden to bring the civil government of Omaha to bow its knees before King Jesus or of our nation or the discipling of the nations. I don't think the Great Commission is fulfilled until the nations are discipled as nations. And I think we ought not to look at things as being impossible simply because it's impossible from a purely human vantage point. God has given us resources that go way beyond the normal, right? And we ought not to look at it the way the world looks at it. Uh, God has given to us spiritual equipment. He's given us a, uh, the training within the church. He's given us a team. And we have everything that it takes to make a difference in the city. We have everything that it takes to be able to conquer those besetting sins within. We have everything that it takes to make troubled marriages into wonderful marriages by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to stir up your heart to take the risky mission that God has called you to take for this week or maybe even uh, this day. And that Esther's uh, mission was an impossible one, can be seen on several levels. Let me just give you five reasons why convincing this king to do something about this decree was really uh, an impossible mission. First of all, to succeed, she had to break a law which ordinarily meant the death penalty. And I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. 
Esther was thinking within the box of what is possible and Mordecai is saying, look, I want you to do the impossible. That's what I'm asking you to do. Um, people on the uh, Mission Impossible team don't think within the box. They are able to accomplish things that others are not able to accomplish because they're thinking different than what other people are thinking, right? And we need to make sure we are not thinking of what is possible based on just human wisdom. We should not be like the ten spies who went into the land of Canaan. They said, nah, it's impossible. There's no way we can conquer these giants. You know, we're grasshoppers in their sight. We need to be like Joshua and Caleb who were driven by the promises of God and by what God said was possible because God said, I will go before you. But this is the first thing that makes this a mission impossible. A second reason is um, that she has to admit to the king that she is one of the Jews whom the king has put under uh, the death penalty. Now, he doesn't realize that it's the Jews themselves that have been put under this, and we demonstrated that the, the other day. But she has to identify with the very people against whom this genocidal plan is going to be taking. And she might be thinking in herself, oh man, what good am I going to be if uh, I identify myself and I get killed right off the bat? Uh, she could have easily uh, taken this as an impossible task. Thirdly, to succeed, she has to convince the king to reverse an irreversible law. Now, what makes it irreversible? Isn't he the king, the great sovereign, you know, he can do anything he wants? Well, amongst the Medes and the Persians, that was not the case. That was one limitation that the king had. When he made a decree, he better think about it because it could never be reversed. And I want you to take a look at a couple of examples. Look at chapter 1 and verse 19. It says, If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. Um, then take a look over at chapter 8. And verse 8 says, You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. Didn't matter how much he loved Esther. Didn't matter how motivated he was to stop this plan. There was absolutely nothing that he could do to reverse this decree. And I want you to turn with me to Daniel 6 to see how irreversible the laws, the decrees of a king would be amongst the, the Medes and the Persians. Daniel chapter 6, this occurs 27 years earlier, and it's under the reign of another Darius, but it's not Darius the Persian, but Darius the Mede. Daniel 6 shows a, a king who is really heartbroken over a decree that he has made, and he can't do anything about it. And by the way, this is another example where a king was tricked into making a decree he didn't realize the ramifications of. Uh, uh. Uh, let's begin, let's see, reading at verse 8. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. And the king signs it. It condemns Daniel, his friend, to death. He was not aware of the repercussions. As soon as he finds out the repercussions, here's what happens in verse 14. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, No, O king, it's the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And so the king gives the, the command and they have to throw Daniel into the lion's den. 
And in verses 18 through 20, you see how incredibly stressed he is about this. Now the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lion? And of course, Daniel says that he was. So here's a king who is very emotionally distressed. He is doing absolutely everything in his power to be able to reverse his decree, and he cannot do it. He could not rescue Daniel. And so uh, she is asking this king to do the impossible. Now, the fourth reason was that to succeed, she has to oppose the most powerful person on the earth next to Darius. Haman is no slouch. You know, he didn't rise to the top of the, of the heap there above all of the other princes uh, very uh, lightly. I think he must have had incredible cunning and he must have had uh, uh, a lot of skill and diplomacy in, in his speech to be able to get there. And he's not going to take her opposition just lying down. If you know the story of Vashti earlier, the princes appear to have more influence and more power than Vashti did. And so this is a formidable foe that she is dealing with. She may fear that he may be able to talk the king out of anything that she says. The fifth thing that makes this omission impossible is that in order to succeed, she is going to be forced to strike a serious blow to the king's pride. I mean, think about it. It is the king's decree. Even though he didn't read it, he said, you know, here's my signet ring. Just make whatever you do. But it's the king's decree that has gone forth. And uh, he's going to have to admit that he is wrong. It's hard for humans, apart from God's grace, to admit to wrong. But when a king has spread this decree all over the empire, it's going to be doubly hard for him to admit, hey, I blew it. Uh, this was not a decree that I should have written. So I hope you appreciate that when chapter 4, when she says, if I perish, I perish, she's not whining like some commentators make her out to be. This is serious stuff that she is dealing with. She is willing to do what needs to be done even though she knows it's going to take a miracle. Otherwise, she's toast. But she's willing to do her part. Now, some of you may feel that some of the things God has called you to do are just as impossible as what Esther is doing and your heart is is beating a mile a minute, your stomach's in knots as you think of saying yes to God's mission assignment to you, and you just feel like you're maybe risking, you know, metaphorically anyway, your death. Obviously, the things God's calling you to is not uh, of the same magnitude of what she's going through, but let me tell you, when you're in the midst of it, it can sometimes feel just as painful. It may be a metaphorical dying to your pride. Oh, Lord, I can't possibly tell them that because they're going to think so poorly of me if they find out what a wretch that I am and I apologize. Or, uh, you know, it may be that you're, you're, you're dying to your fleshly desires that are, have such strong cravings and God says, you need to lick that, you need to stop that, don't give in to it. Or it may be your fears or phobias. But whatever the case, what God is been calling in your life for you to do sometimes has the same impact on your heart as what Esther was going through here. And I think Esther stands as a challenge to all of us, men, women, and children, to make sure we do what God calls us to do, whether it's admitting to wrong or whether it's bringing a rebuke or whether it's 
um, witnessing to a person that the Lord's prompting us to witness to. And let me tell you, too, that those opportunities only come once. Uh, sort of like on Mission Impossible, you know, after the phone call, you throw it and it blows up. Uh, that opportunity is gone. God may bring other opportunities into your life and other integrity checks that cause you to grow and to develop. But the one that you rejected, that's gone, and your reward for that thing is gone for all of eternity. And so this is something we need to think through. Yes, God gives more opportunities, but we need to be taking all of the opportunities that God brings into our life. We might think, hey, it's just too much. There's no way I can handle this. But the encouraging thing is God promises to never give us more than we can handle. And he promises to resource us and he promises to be on the team. Okay, how could you have it any better? He's the mastermind behind our mission impossible. And once you have tasted that the Lord is enabling you to, to get through one mission impossible after another, you begin to realize, I don't want to trade this life of living in the realm of the supernatural for anything others might be able to, to, to hand to me. It's almost addicting, you know, where you, you long for more of that. Yes, it's been. Maybe there's been some miseries, there's been some excitements, but uh, whatever the case, you want day by day to say to the Lord, Lord, my, my checkbook's open here. I've already signed it. You tell me what you want me to do today. I want to be on your Mission Impossible team. And uh, it is worthwhile. It truly is exciting. Whether it's sins that we're conquering in our own life or whether it's working with other people, it truly is exciting. Now, let me take a little bit of time looking at her strategy and then maybe just beginning to look at God's strategy and we'll continue that next week. But uh, each of the three points that are in your outline there is an attempt by her to take some dominion over her circumstances. I think too many of us fail to take dominion, which means that our circumstances are taking dominion of us. Instead of us uh, planning and arranging the circumstances that are around it, we just let things happen. And when we do that, we get ourselves into trouble. And so what she's trying to do in these three points is take her responsibility that God has given to her, and again, that's by God's grace, and then leaving the results in God's hands. Now, there's a lot she does not know, but she can at least eliminate some of the unknown in three ways. The first thing that she decides to do is to present her case in person rather than by letter. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house where the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. Now people have debated as to why she would go into the presence of the king and risk death like this because Herodotus, the uh, Greek, ancient Greek historian, said that, yes, the Persians did not allow anybody to come unannounced and without invitation into his presence, but they always had the opportunity of sending a letter. Why did she not send a letter? I think there's five good reasons uh, why uh, she wanted to be in person rather than by letter. First of all, it lets her communicate with more than just words. Okay, it's so easy for a letter to be misinterpreted. And, of course, face-to-face you know, interactions can be misinterpreted as well. But in a face-to-face -face situation, you can communicate with more than just words. The tone of your voice, uh, the, the body language with which you come. In verse 2, she shows poise of, of mind and body. And even though there are times where a letter would be more effective, 
there are times that there really is no substitute for a personal presence. A second good reason for taking this risk is that she could read the body language of Haman and of Mordecai, as w uh, not Mordecai, Haman and the king, and it would enable her to adjust her speech accordingly. You know, maybe she's misunderstood in something she says and she can immediately clarify uh, what it is. And if the correspondence had been by letter, that would be different. She wouldn't know what his reaction was. She wouldn't be able to know if he's taken action until long after the fact. Maybe he would only take action on her behalf and not on behalf of the people. There's so many things that she would not be a part of if, it, if um, she just did it by letter. Now, in verse 2, she immediately knows he's favorable toward her. And in, certainly in verse 3, her mind is set at ease where it says, uh, the king said to her, what do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half your kingdom. Now, that's to her advantage as well. And I think for ourselves, we can read people and their responses to us and make adjustments so much easier when there is a face-to-face -face relationship. The third good reason that she wants to be present in the throne room on this initial interview, and she wants them both present with them later, is that uh, it enables her to control the circumstances to some degree, not totally, but to some degree, and figure out the best time to spill this news. The fourth reason is it forces the king to deal with a person rather than an impersonal problem. You know, sometimes when people read a letter, uh, it, it does not have the same impact on them. They're not as maybe concerned as if there was a face-to-face -face relationship that was going on. Now, sometimes, actually, it's the reverse. You know, people are so intimidated or the other person that you're going to be talking to is going to be so intimidated that writing a letter may be the, the best uh, option. But you need to look at the circumstances there. The fifth reason is that this keeps a decision from being procrastinated indefinitely. Now, why would he procrastinate a decision? I think there's every reason in the world why his hands are tied. And you've seen all the impossibilities there. And it would be very easy for him to just make no decision, to procrastinate, because it's like frustrating. What decision can be made on, on this issue? And so it, it, it forces something to be precipitated. Now, in our lives, whether you are facing controversy, broken relationships, trying to convince somebody of, of something, consider the face-to-face -face dealing. There is many times far more advantages to that. Sometimes there's a greater advantage to writing a letter but um, the first part is she's looking at how. How do I say this? How do I approach it? We need to think of the how. Her second strategy was to appeal to the king's curiosity. And this is setting up the context. Uh, she presents herself in a context that immediately arouses curiosity. So the first thing he does is, what do you wish? And that is not an idle question. He knows she's risked her life to come into his presence. So... You know, she's not just hanging around and wanting to chat or something like that. There's obviously something, you know, profoundly uh, troubling or exciting or something or other that, that she has. So uh, his curiosity is piqued. Mine would definitely be piqued if I was in that situation. Then she says in verse 4, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Now, in verse 6... She piques his curiosity even more because he comes to the banquet and she still doesn't tell him. He says, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. And she goes on to say, 
you know, uh, you know, this is something I'd like you to, to spill to you later on, verses uh, 8 and following, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition, fulfill my request, and let the king and Haman come to the banquet, which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Now, by this time, I'm sure the king is probably very, very curious as to what is going on. We are not told why she postpones it. Some commentators have said, well, maybe she lost nerve. Could be. Maybe she just senses that this is not the right time to bring it up. Maybe the Spirit of God prompts her, you know, or puts a check in her spirit that this is not the right time. Who knows uh, why, she, uh, why she did this. We know God has a reason because there has to be another 24 hours. God's going to be doing a pile of stuff in the next 24 hours. He's going to give the king a sleepless night, and he's going to be read to. He's going to find out that Mordecai wasn't rewarded, and... And he's going to exalt Mordecai, humble Haman. He's going to have Haman already build those gallows. I mean, there's a ton of stuff that's, that's going on that has to take place. But on her part, uh, maybe she's appealing to his curiosity. The third strat strategy is to make sure that Haman, the one she's going to be accusing, is present when the confrontation happens. Haman is such a crafty fellow that if she did this by letter without her presence being there, he might be able to talk his way out of this and she would never be able to respond or know even what he had said. And so she wants to make sure she can say the right things and to say everything that is needed to be said. Now, inviting him to both parties may also have that second benefit and, and point to there, elevating his ego, throwing him off guard. It also lets the king read Haman's body language. And maybe this is one of the more important things. She, she wants the king to be able to see the guilt written all over Haman's face. And uh, she wants him to hang himself on his own words and actions. The fourth reason why inviting Haman to the banquet is important is that there would be an object towards which the king's wrath could be directed. Okay, so it wouldn't just be between the king and the queen. See, he's got his pride to save, right? And uh, if there's some action he can immediately take of getting angry toward the person who is being accused... Uh, that might uh, that might help as well. And then finally, <clears throat> it will maximize the possibility that action can be immediately taken against Haman. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 7. And so it's clear to me, Esther has a strategy. She didn't have a lot to work with, but she's got a strategy. I think it's a good strategy. And she knows it's still going to take a miracle. That's why in chapter 4, verse 16, she tells the people, pray for me for three days. Be in fasting for me. And um, she's going to do everything that she can to try to communicate effectively. And I think in this, she stands as a model for us. When you apologize and you're really nervous about how this is going to be taken, there's maybe a major upset between you and somebody else, you may want to write down exactly what you are going to say. And you may want to rehearse it. I'm convinced that Esther rehearsed this over and over again uh, to make sure that it uh, came uh, across well. Uh, many times when we just rush into things like that, the words that come out just make us, you know, we stumble all over ourselves, make ourselves like an idiot. Or worse, we say things that can, and that's our natural tendency, that can tend to seem like we're justifying ourselves when we're really wanting to expose our iniquity or where we're being accusatory toward the other person. And so I doubt very much that she came up with this on the fly. Planning and care in execution, it's biblical. 
wise choice of words, it's biblical. It's not enough to do the right thing. We also need to be able to do it in the right way. This past week, I got um, another book catalog from uh, Trinity Book Service. It's a Reformed Baptist uh, book service that gives fantastic uh, discounts. But anyway, there was a set of books that they were advertising by the Puritan writer Thomas Adams. And here's a quote that got my attention. Thomas Adams said, With God, adverbs shall have better thanks than nouns. Not what we do, but how we do it is the grand question. I thought, that, that is so good. That is so good. Let me read that again. He said, with God, adverbs, adverbs, you know, are descriptive, you know, they're dealing with the how. He said, with God, adverbs shall have better thanks than nouns, not what we do, that's the nouns, but how we do it, that's the adverbs, is the grand question. And so in our communication, we need to make sure we're saying the right thing, we're saying it in the right way, and we're doing it in the right context. Just as an example, um, it's a wonderful thing when we give cheerful greetings, you know, to our friends. But in Proverbs, it says, he who blesses his friend early in the morning when it's dark it w with a loud voice, it will be counted as a curse. You might say, well, why does he count it as a curse? I was blessing him. I was saying the right words. Yeah, but it was the wrong, wrong context. He wants to sleep then, right? And so the context is a very important thing that we need to think through in, in our communication. Or you may ask for forgiveness and use the right words, but you're saying the words in the wrong way. You're saying, well, sorry, please forgive me. Well, you know, this person's not sorry and he's not really asking for forgiveness. He's not saying it with a heart that is anywhere remotely resembling the language that he's talking about. So having the right context, saying it in the right way is important, but having the right words is also very important. I think a lot of times people do. They have, they've got fantastic context in which they're saying it and they've got good motives. They really want to do it right it just comes out wrong and they stick their foot in their mouth, okay? And they blow it and it just makes matters even worse. And so thinking through the right words is so important as well. And one of the things that we can do, not only writing down, and if you're wondering, boy, what is this going to accomplish the purpose that I've wanted? Is it going to be taken in the spirit in which I intended it to be taken? And if you're not sure, pass the letter by a, a confidant and ask them, am, am I coming across, you know, self-justifying or proud or accusatory at all? And then you can edit it, and then you can memorize it, and then you can say it, okay? But it, it's got to be said with the right words as well. And so Esther has a strategy. And uh, even though she didn't have a lot to work with, she couldn't just use the excuse, look, my hands are tied, there's nothing I can do. She tries to plan the best she can. And here's my question to you. You know your impossible situations. Are you developing a strategy to try to deal with them? You need to. It's very important that you have a plan. But the neat thing about this is we can count on God having a strategy as well. And this is our last point, God's strategy. We're just players on the mission. God has information. He has help that goes far beyond anything that we can do. God, for example, knows that Haman is going to be blinded by his pride in verses 9 through 11. He's happy as a lark, you know, coming out of this place. And God needs to make sure that things get twisted just a little bit. And so he conveniently puts Mordecai in the wrong spot. 
And so uh, let's read verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. God knows the human heart so well. Uh, he knows that when pride is not fed, it doesn't matter how well things go, you're going to be miserable when you're proud. God knows that Haman likes vengeance with a, a style, and so he feels pretty safe in putting Mordecai into Haman's presence uh, when he's really uh, ticked off. And uh, you can see that in verse 10. Lesser men might have actually just gotten so angry, lost control, killed Mordecai, and then they would have been in trouble with the king because they need to get the king's permission for something like that. But uh, Haman, he had the self-control. He knew exactly what he was doing. Verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called his friends and his wife Zeresh. God needs these friends, and he needs Zeresh to push Haman faster than he might otherwise have been pushed. Verses 11 through 13. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow... I am again invited by her along with, the, along with the king. Even though I'm not dealing with pride primarily in this sermon, I think this is so instructive on how pride works. Pride wants to be the best, but it's not satisfied with being the best. It wants others to notice that it's the best, right? You know, a humble man, he can be the best at something and not worry about it, but pride is not willing to be anonymous. Pride has got to be out there. It's got to have somebody noticing what is going on. And so Haman, he calls all of his friends and his relatives together and he says, okay, here's some more reasons why you ought to think of me as the greatest guy in the world. Uh, and he just deals with all of the things that, uh, that he has done. Pride is really a form of self-worship. And that is why God hates pride so much. And that is why we've got to crucify pride in our hearts. It is simply a form of self-worship. And you need to think through the reasons why you want people to notice the things that you are doing. Is it for Haman's reasons? If it is, you need to crucify. You need to put that down because pride will lead to your fall. In fact, Kathy was just mentioning to me uh, the other day a great example of this is, uh, let's see, what are the names? Malvo and Muhammad in Maryland. You know, they probably wouldn't have been caught if it wasn't for the guy's pride, you know. He wants to be noticed. And his pride leads to his fall. That's exactly what here. He's the one that strings up the noose that goes around his neck. And um, if we have pride like that, we very much needs, need, to, need to deal with it. Here's the other problem I probably should mention just on the side. Ask people if you are proud. Now, if you tend to be a really hot-headed person, they may not give you the honest answer because they don't want to get their head bit off. But ask people because we don't tend to see our own pride. We tend to be blind to it. One person said that pride is like bad breath. Everybody else can, can tell you have it except for you. You know, you just don't notice you got bad breath. You don't notice that you got pride. And so it may be a good thing to ask people, somebody that's got the courage to tell you exactly where it's at and say, yeah, that is something that you need to work on. Here's some examples where, where you could change. And um, you might not be real receptive to it. It's got to be a grace of God working in your heart to desire to conquer that pride. 
Well, God knows that Haman... Oh, you know, just as a, a side note, if you don't want to be asking other people if you're proud because you're scared you might respond wrongly, here's one way you can find out. Just expose your weaknesses and your worst points to a select few number of people that you would tend to want to hide it from. And you'll immediately, even thinking about doing it, is immediately going to rouse up some, oh, man, I couldn't dare do that. Well, if you have feelings like that, it's probably good to immediately start exposing some of the areas. Yeah, I flunked my exam this past week, or I, I um, you, know, you know, had a, a lousy thing, or I was last in the race, or whatever it is, you know, that maybe you would tend to be proud about. Just start telling people about it as an ordinary co course to begin crucifying that inward principle. Anyway, God knows... Haman's going to be blinded not only by pride, but by his rage and his bitterness as well. Verse 13, Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate or at the king's gate. That is a weird thing about sin. Here is a person who has it all. He's at the top of the heap next to the king, and yet he cannot enjoy it. Why? Because he's allowing this sin to conquer his heart. When you allow bitterness to grip your heart, some people, you know, they're just imagining how they're going to punish the person by doing this and that. No, you're the only person who's been conquered. The enemy has won, you know, because your, your heart is holding on to that bitterness. And why in the world, I've done it myself, why in the world we hold on to this sin which is making us miserable rather than confessing it and going on and pursuing the right thing to do which brings joy and peace who knows? But sin is irrational. And these sins are irrational. Haman does not see straight. And so God justly allows Haman to build his own noose in verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made 50 cubits high. Now that's 75 feet according to my margin here, which is a pretty tall, a pretty tall gibbet. He's, he's basically saying, uh, these guys are saying, we know he likes everything to be done with style, you know, that he wants to be the best at everything. So, yeah, make everybody know that nobody can cross Haman. Build it 75 feet high. And in the morning, suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had a gallows built. Now, you can see God is already working out the impossible for Esther behind the scenes. Uh, not all of it would be, you know, on the surface. Some of it's behind the surface. Next week, we're going to look at more of God's incredible strategy. Uh, I think I'm going to be calling it, instead of sleepless in Seattle, sleepless in Susa. Uh, but how this is really the crux. This is in terms of the structure of the book. It's a major chiasm that focuses on the sleeplessness of this king. And the reason that's important is to show it's no human activity it's God's activity sovereignly behind the scenes which makes the difference in everything that happens in this book. It really is a neat uh, thing in terms of structure. But God in these chapters we have been seeing has to control everything to be able to control anything. He has to be able to overrule and to control even the sins of these people. He controlled every sin that was involved in the crucifixion of Christ without being the author of sin, without tempting people to sin, or without in any way being implicated yet God can sovereignly allow the freedoms of people to rule and yet and yet uh, not be uh, have his plan taken aside now if you've still been balking at saying yes to God's mission think about it this way your being on mission impossibles 
is an evidence of the genuineness of your Christianity. That's what the Sermon on the Mount, that's the basic theme of the Sermon on the Mount, that it shows our sonship, that we are different than unbelievers. Uh, it's, the, it's only Christians that God gives the mission impossibles to. It's only them that he honors with his presence, with his resources, and all of these things. And so it's an incredible honor for God to be giving these integrity checks into your life. And you need to stop short and say, you know, you're tempted to go a different direction. Say, oh, Lord, thank you for honoring me with this integrity check. Help me by your grace to make the right decision. Help me by your grace to do the right thing. It's an awesome privilege. And I want you to trust him and to accept the honor of the mission impossibles that he asks you to do in this coming week. And may he be honored. Amen.